Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm privileged today to meet with Jake Nelson. Jake is actually a part of our church, and he's done some very interesting historical study in the realm of you know late uh, 19th and early 20th century uh, American evangelicalism and and the role that money has played in some of that not necessarily in a bad way but just you know how God uses money in the kingdom and how that how that has worked with different men so Jake thank you for joining us today good to be here so, Jake, just introduce yourself. Talk a little bit about your own background, you know, academically, what your research interests are, and things like that. Sure. Uh, I have a master's degree from the University of Tennessee in uh, American history. Um, I actually entered that program in 2017, seeking a PhD, and uh, made it through to the point that's called ABD, all but dissertation, which means I, I finished. Um, coursework and comprehensive exams and proposed a dissertation and was uh, primed and ready to research and write it. And um, the COVID shutdowns hit and wasn't able to do that in time uh, before things opened up again. Um, So I have a mound of notes and a lot of uh, papers written and a lot more books stacked up that I would like to read someday. And then uh, what was going to be a dissertation, Lord willing, may be uh, a book down the road somewhere, maybe 10, 20 years from now. I don't know. Well, I'm looking forward to that when, when, whenever it comes. I, I remember when, when Jake and, and his wife Hannah were first visiting our church, we got into just a, a discussion about interest, and he was talking about some of his different interests in these areas. And I I recall the conversation went for longer than, than normal first-time conversations with visitors often go because we just went both on a on a tear down the down the rabbit hole of the role of you know, money and how money affects and and has affected American history but particularly evangelical history so Jake uh, sent me some of his work that he had that he produced in the past and also, a nice hefty list. Well, he didn't send a hefty list, but but he sent several books that are helpful in thinking about these topics. But Jake, just describe what your own research interests are, and and, and what are the things that you've you've learned from the, the work that you've done. Well, when I began uh, graduate study, I initially wanted to write a dissertation in the, the antebellum period on the slavery debates between Northern and Southern Christians um, in the United States before the Civil War. And I, I quickly realized that that was a heavily populated area of American history, and I might not make a dent in it uh, in the primary sources or you know, may not uh, reach any particular audience um, with that research just yet. And so I, I moved to post-Civil War. I discovered through reading and study that that's a very dynamic area um, in any realm you can think of, economics, uh, politics, uh, society, especially religion, intellectual history. Um, So uh, 
as these things sometimes happen, I was speaking with an advisor um, trying to write a, a seminar paper, and the theme of the class was fame, fame and renown in history. And so I was telling him a few figures I had in mind, and my advisor said, well, have you ever thought about Dwight Moody? I said, well, yeah, I guess so. I've thought about him. He said, well, you know, just do some reading on him and see what uh, see what comes up. And you may want to choose him as a subject. Um, and turns out he was probably the most famous um, Christian in the United States in the second half of roughly the second half of the 19th century, uh, a traveling evangelist. He was an institution builder. Um, he got to start as a shoe salesman, of all things, in, in Chicago, Illinois. Um, but I, I dived into uh, his life, Dwight Moody from, from Chicago, and um, notice connections that other historians had made to the later fundamentalist uh, movement or the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the, the early, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and the more I read, I uh, heard a very a respected, renowned historian, George Marsden, say that he was a, Moody was a, a principal progenitor, one of the very first fundamentalists. He, he was a founder of this revivalist movement that became one of the streams that flowed into fundamentalism. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. We'll look more into that. Um, the more I read, the more primary sources I encountered, um, the more I analyzed Moody's life and his uh, sermons and his relationships, his methods. Um, I started to wonder if he really was going to fit into that category of a proto-fundamentalist. Was he really somebody who um, could be categorized as a member of that group? Um, because the, you know, most historians uh, of that era and uh, of the topic are going to divide it broadly into uh, the conservative evangelicals who latched on to um, biblical inerrancy and fought for um, often premillennial eschatology um, and stood against modernism in culture as well as uh, you know, Darwinism, higher criticism in the realms of uh, science and biblical interpretation. Um, it's that group versus um, the liberal Christians, liberal uh, theological liberals who wanted to accommodate these changes and change their views on uh, the origins and the meaning of the Bible. Or it was cultural modernists, the ones who um, say somebody sort of like a, a Mark Twain um, or a, you know, there are other figures, other authors um, in particular in intellect who, who said, well, the Bible is just a, a book like any other and... Um, it's time for us to move past religion. It's time for us to move past the study of theology and uh, do away with uh, devotion to religion and belief in God in, entirely. So th those three camps are generally what uh, historians describe. And here I was reading and thought, well, maybe I've discovered something that could uh, complicate this picture. Maybe there's uh, another stream of um, evangelical Christianity that was founded in that late 19th century and then has... Um, had influence and had adherence and, uh, you know, especially had relationships with uh, big actors and, and uh, influential people and even past those uh, institutions and attitudes and um, methods uh, into the 20th century and even to our present day. All right. So normally then when people consider Moody, that they just they automatically lump him in with you know with, with the social god not not with the with, with the fundamentalist you know it, it being in the same line with someone like Billy Sunday and and others but but in your paper you 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 do take a, a somewhat different track 
in, in one of your papers. So what are the characteristics then of someone like Moody that, that, that keeps him from, or that, that makes him moderate? Now, now, when we say moderate, at that time, sometimes, you know, if you'd say the, the moderates are the ones who don't believe in the resurrection and stuff like that. And, but that's not what you mean when, when, you're, when D.L. Moody was a moderate. Right, certainly not. That, that's the, um, the trouble with starting a dissertation, not getting to finish it. You have these terms that you think, oh, refine this later. I know I'm going to come up with a more specific term. But what I had at the time was a moderate evangelicalism. And what I meant by that was somebody who, um, Moody in particular, but others who came after him and who um, were part of his network, were distinctly theologically conservative. They believed in biblical inerrancy. They believed in the physical resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, the things that um, fundamentalists later packaged as you know the, the five fundamentals that we, you couldn't compromise on. Um, but the attitude, the the militancy, and the the willingness to get into intellectual and theological battles with others um, that. And then uh, the opposition to a lot of cultural trends that were changing in the, the early 20th century that these later fundamentalists had uh, were certainly not part of Moody. He was an, a very irenic personally. He got along with everybody. He had friends who were um, higher critics and who were theological liberals. He had friends who also were some of the ones who went on to become the, the prime movers of uh, fundamentalism, such as you know, R.A. Torrey, who, who was later um, headmaster at uh, Moody Bible Institute. Um, but uh, he also um, used certain evangelistic methods and uh, had relationships which to our eyes now were kind of behind the scenes. I don't think he was trying to hide them by any means, but um, to our eyes now they're behind the scenes relationships with, with people that um, allowed for a more moderate stance on issues. And then uh, if not that, at least the, the desire to stay out of certain divisive issues and say, well, these aren't part of my practical work. I, I don't need to get into this issue, um, which of course the fundamentalists were fighting an intellectual, spiritual, theological battle. And um, for Moody, uh, being personable, being um, someone that tried as hard as he could to get along with everybody, um, these were not issues that he, he desired to um, fight out in the public eye. Let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, as far as that, that, just that general time period goes. So, so we're talking late 18, early 1900s, correct? Yes, that's right. And so, and, and you've already talked about the different groups earlier that, that were a, a part of this. Was Moody the classic? So, okay, so this is also the age we, we can't avoid talking about this being the age of the um, of the evangelical showman you know you have already mentioned Billy Sunday you have Amy Semple McPherson who's a total other I'm, I'm not you know besmirching Moody by, by putting them in the same categories but but I mean you have people who were very theatrical and they they their, their, their proclamations were, were such. How do you qualify someone like him? B because, you know, in, in our reform circles, we, we automatically lump everyone to the, you know, e e everyone who's beyond s somebody, oh goodness, like in my parents' generation, they looked up to Charles Stanley, 
someone, you know, the Southern Baptist pastor of First Baptist Atlanta, you know, everyone from Charles Stanley and Billy Graham back is, well, they're just on one side. And then you have all the reformed people who, who you know, more straight-laced and such as that on another. Where does Moody fit in with in, in, in that, in, you know, in those categories? That's a very interesting question. It's something I've uh, thought about quite recently as a possibility of how to introduce this whole topic to somebody who, who may not be in the weeds uh, of history, uh, like I have been in the past, but, um, you, you and I both, I, I think have read a lot and a lot of reformed Christians even say the last decade or so, I, I've read a lot about the first and second great awakening. So the first happening in the mid 1700s and then the second, the early to mid 1800s. And those revivals say in Cambridge, Kentucky, or, you know, the backwoods of Tennessee or upstate New York, um, these are times of, uh, high emotions and fiery preachers, people having uh, sometimes a very noticeable physical experience that, that goes with their um, professed conversion to Christianity. Um, there's a wonderful book by a historian called Fits, Trances, and Visions, and, and that's kind of a way to encapsulate some of the um, right. The, some of the, the descriptions that you would get uh, firsthand sources of what was going on at these revivals in the, the late 1700s, the early 1800s. Um, then a lot of uh, Reformed Christians stop there. They zoom ahead to Billy Graham and they zoom ahead to the Gospel Coalition today and, and say, well, here's um, the, the last 200 years of American religious history. And what I noticed was that there was a gap there um, in the middle of the 1800s, the post-Civil War era, when a lot of things were um, happening culturally and intellectually, big changes afoot. And, and I said, well, the, the history of revivalism didn't start and then skip 50 years or so. There's a, a whole segment of revivalists and evangelists who, who were um, active there. And Dwight Moody was probably the foremost of them. So he wasn't uh, you know, a handsome, polished, uh, sophisticated communicator like Billy Graham of the 20th century. He wasn't um the, the fiery, wild look in his eyes of Charles Finney um, in upstate New York in the 1820s and 30s either. And he certainly wasn't aiming for um, people to fall down and, and you know, get, get caught with um, what they thought was the, the, the spirit and, and fall down um, or come weeping to the anxious bench or something like that, um, that as they were sometimes in, in the Second Great Awakening. He was a, a middle-class figure. He was large. He had kind of a, a Chestertonian bearing. He was about 300 pounds and you know, over six feet tall. Um, bearded man. His kids loved him. He was a great family man. Um, his friends adored him. And, and uh, he had a presentation that was not intellectually or theologically sophisticated, but uh, it was very, um, I would say, sentimental was how he presented himself in, in his uh, public evangelism and uh, simple and folksy. You know, that's not a very academic term, but uh, the more you read and uh, hear what you can't physically hear what he said, but there, there were stenographers that were capturing his every word and you can really get a sense of who he was and what he was like on stage. Um, he later partnered with, uh, another man who was a singer, uh, named Ira Sankey. And mm -hmm. it was kind of the, the first, um, wave that we are familiar with. Say if you come from, a you know, a revivalistic or Baptistic or even kind of Pentecostal charismatic background, or if you've witnessed those kind of things where, uh, somebody picks the guitar and, um, in the background and someone sings uh, low and breathy kind of and um, the preacher's <laughs> making making an altar call 
Um, that's certainly not uh, the Charles Finney method where he's trying to get people to really, you know, have an intense emotional experience um, and begin to weep or something like that. But uh, right. uh, um, soft, uh, sentimentalistic kind of pushing people toward this experience and this conclusion. Um, and it's not, again, not overly sophisticated theologically, and it's not overly emotional either. It, it was a very uh, measured and purposeful kind of experience that uh, he ended up pushing a lot of people towards. Right. I know like Billy Graham had George Beverly Shea, who was his famous uh, song leader at his crusades. But a lot of the songs that, that many of us grew up with in Baptist churches were our, our Ira Sankey uh, songs, like the um, one called The 90 and 9, and, oh goodness, what else? Uh, there's, one, there's one about prayer. Uh, oh, what a, oh, what a Savior. And, and there's plenty of others. But, the titles you know, escape me right now, but um, right. a lot of them were, uh, say, from the perspective of a mother grieving over uh, a, a child who you know would not take that step and convert, and then was going right. to miss that person in, in heaven. And that was that linked up a lot of times purposefully with with the way Moody preached. You know, it was a story of there's a man I know, or you know, there's a family I know, and let me tell you their story, and then you hear that that music later right. on and it's really linking those two uh, as an emotional kind of experience. Right. And, and I mean, it, it is an emotional appeal. So, so this is not what we are accustomed to normally for, uh, again, in our circles, but it, and it's not even something that we would appreciate hear, hearing someone who's going to, you know, just, just play on the sentimentality of the thing. But, you know, looking f further, there was, there was a lot more going on at the time. So, so you, you have Moody, but again, there's a lot of, there's a lot that's shaping the American religious landscape. You, you have the, you have the, the social gospel on one hand, which is emphasized a lot of, uh, you know, action, you have different movements uh, like the, the temperance movement and the, uh, of course, the abolitionism came before the war between the states. And then you have, uh, oh goodness, what else? The suffrage movement, also uh, Seneca Falls Convention. So, so you have various movements and the social gospel was really pushing these different movements what are some other aspects of the social gospel and who are some of the characters involved in pushing that? Yeah. The, the um, two major intellectual figures, uh, the social gospel, which um, really begins in late in Moody's day and then into the, the early 20th century, um, Walter Rauschenbusch and, and uh, Washington Gladden are the two, they compile a lot of the uh, um, ideas and, and package them and publish them as, you know, big works that they, again, had formulated for years and years and, and put them out there in the public consciousness. Um, and then there's uh, pretty recent arguments that um, your ordinary working people in 
labor unions, say in big cities in Chicago, in New York, uh, in Philadelphia, were actually um, formulating a lot of the, the social gospel, um, you know, aims such as higher wages, uh, solving um, crime and violence and uh, domestic abuse, or, or you know, solving uh, drunkenness and alcoholism, and um, pushing on. Uh, employers and, and industrialist capitalists to um, have more of a almost paternalistic, but but uh, you know a, a sense of responsibility and obligation toward their workers um, to try to fix some of the the problems that were arising in uh, a nation that was industrializing uh, all of a sudden. And um, so, yeah, that, that's interesting to um, you remind me of that because Moody. You know, of course, lived in Chicago himself and um, saw a lot of the problems that um, well, uh, the sudden switch to industrial capitalism in, in the United States, especially in the North at this time, um, was causing for people. And he agreed that they were problems and he was uh, active in those same kind of ways, which, again, was not something you know, the fundamentalist movement later on was very opposed to the social gospel right. in, in a lot of its uh, elements. And um and that was just another point that I came across that you made me think this is a, a, another stream. It's kind of someone aiming for uh, a third or fourth way between um, these other uh, battling elements of religion and, and intellectual life. Well, that, that also reminds me as well. And they're, they're not the same type of figure, but Charles Spurgeon in the UK, uh, I mean, approximately, Spurgeon was in his later years when when Moody was on the was on the rise. I think. I mean, the, the, their lifespan certainly part of them coincide. But Spurgeon was I mean, theologically conservative, but he had elements of what we would today say social gospel politically in his. Beliefs. I remember the. Uh, I, I was reading one one historian who said that uh, he allowed that Spurgeon allowed the Metropolitan Tabernacle to be used as a base for the Labor Party. In in you know like a headquarters for the Labor Party in their area of London. So you have Spurgeon who's who's very much on the on, on the Labor side even. You know, in spots of something approaching socialism for that time, versus someone like, uh, oh goodness, I've got his book down here, J.C. Ryle, who was a Tory and a Church of England man, evangelical, so so not Anglo-Catholic, but Ryle was, I mean, he had very little use for the for the ideas of the Labor Party. So, again, I'm not saying that Moody was like Spurgeon, but often we think that religious conservatism automatically means political conservative or even libertarianism. That some of the books that that you that you mentioned, and and one of which uh, by Matthew Sutton, uh, like I said earlier, before the before we started this, uh, I had but did, had not read uh, about the uh, the American Apocalypse. 
it talks about that that very thing. So what is the or maybe I may be getting that wrong with or com- confused with the Kevin Cruz book One Nation Under God, but still how did those two, you know, how, how did, for the American mind, and or at least for us today, <clears throat> excuse me, we think of political conservatism with religious conservatism. But those two did not always go together necessarily. So how did that come about? Yeah, that's a huge topic that uh, um, has occupied a lot of people's minds. Um, it's... <laughs> Part of me, I, I, I want to, uh, part of what I would love to do as an intellectual project, you know, the rest of my life is kind of reclaim that um, mantle as say, you mentioned Spurgeon, before him in, in England, you're going to have people like Thomas Carlyle, Elizabeth Gaskell, Charles Dickens, these are writers and intellectuals, mm-hmm. maybe not Orthodox Christians uh, theologically as we would um, want them to be uh, today, but um, holding to uh, a belief in God and a belief in the obligations of you know, the aristocracy, the nobility, employers toward um, the, the people that they're um, employing and uh, noticing that there are problems that come with um, industrial capitalism and uh, with changes in technology that, that are too rapid for people to um, deal with. And um, they were decades before Marx, decades before the Communist Manifesto and uh, calling out these problems from a much more, even if not completely biblical, but a much more biblical and, and Christian standpoint and saying we have an obligation to try to notice these things and do what we can to alleviate them. Um, and yes, uh, you know, that's uh, across the pond, of course, but many of the same kind of things happen uh, in, in the United States. The, um, the link between um, economic and political uh, conservatism or libertarianism or laissez-faire or whatever you want to call it, um, was not nearly as firm in the 1870s or um, the 1890s as it is today. A lot of that, historians ascribe it to um, the the Great Depression in the 20s and 30s, and then the era of the New Deal, um, Roosevelt and uh, his cabinet members and the the reams of what we would call today, I guess, um, unelected bureaucrats putting that um, kind of into place and... uh, Openly, it, it, it um, was not avowing that it was a, a socialist program, but a lot of people recognized that it was. And a lot of us, I think, would probably recognize the, many of uh, the elements of the New Deal as that today. And um, understandably, a, a lot of um, evangelical Christians and then a lot of businessmen who were friends with evangelical Christians wanted to uh, join forces and, and push back against that because they noticed a link to an intellectual uh, and philosophical link from to sorry, from socialism to uh, atheism, uh, to, you know, the godless communism, and uh, were noticing that that was a a danger to American society. It was a danger to the masses who might get caught on to the economic program and think that it could help them and then um, end up falling into the trap of uh, the political, intellectual, spiritual um, program of socialism or, or communism. So you see that link beginning to form and it's kind of understandable from, from a, a intellectual and historical perspective that um, if you see something that you believe is so detrimental, you're going to make the alliances that you think you need to at that time to, to try to push back against that. And that's what uh, happened with a, a lot of um, prominent evangelical Christians and 
uh, these are leaders of seminaries and institutions and pastors in uh, big cities with uh, big pulpits and big platforms making uh, friends and alliances with um, businessmen, say the, the DuPont brothers, um, or uh, I'm going to forget his name now, the Quaker Oats, um, the, the founder of that company who actually became right. the um, chancellor of Moody Bible Institute. And, you know, there's not just a relationship. He's, he's one man holding both of those kind of positions at, at the same right. time. So that, that begins to happen. And then of course, you know, you, you may, uh, you can fast forward to the 1950s and 1960s, the midst, uh, the high points of the cold war when, um, communism was explicitly linked to atheism. And it was part of being a Christian in America to oppose communism. And, um, who else might want to do that besides prominent Christians would be um, prominent businessmen who, who want uh, a free and unregulated market to um, thrive and, and to um, continue in the United States. So that's, that's uh, encapsulated very quickly and uh, probably leaving out a good bit of nuance that was uh, really there, uh, but at sure, the beginning but, at least. But, but that is a fascinating, really fascinating topic how we went from, you know, where we were when, when, I mean, step back early 1900s, there's a lot going on in the, in across, I mean, throughout the world, you go from the rise of industrial, I mean, heavy industrial capitalism to very soon world war one. You have people like, Theodore Roosevelt and later uh, Woodrow Wilson saying, and, and of course, William Jennings Bryan during his 14 presidential campaigns, it seems like. Not quite, just for the people who are checking me for historical accuracy. But, you know, they're all campaigning on reining in the interests of business. There's the, and, and even before that, in the South, you have in the late 1800s the rise of the populist movement, which is, I mean, that was honestly, that was one of my favorite topics to teach in American history every year. I, I loved talking about the populist movement. Uh, there's and there, there, one book that I have that does a really good job of describing Southern populism. It's called Man Over Money, the Southern Populist Critique of American Capitalism. When, when we think of capital or capitalism as a, as a system, most of the time we, we equate it automatically with a free market where everyone is playing by the same rules and there is no leverage that anyone has over another. But by the late 1800s, there was nothing like everyone playing by the same rules. So the, these movements were not just, it wasn't a bunch of proto-Marxists in the South saying, you know what, how about we just make everybody, uh, we just steal from everybody so we can have more. But I mean, they saw real problems and they wanted those dealt with. And with the religious groups teaching against things like, uh, you know, of course, the dangers of mammon 
and teaching, even if you venture too far down, you know, in the Old Testament, you're going to come up with all kinds of verses that that, that talk about the, the dangers of people using wealth in a wrong way. It, it's it's not a it's not a hard move when you when your life is really difficult. And it's difficult because you have banks who are giving you a worse rate for taking your farm products to the market than they give the guy that has 5,000 acres. He, he gets a much better rate simply because he slipped a moderate bribe to the railroad company. So, you know, what is this? How, how were people supposed to respond or what is an accurate response from people look like in when, when, when somebody's facing those types of challenges? Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's, again, it's a tough question. Uh, I try to answer everything historically if I can, because then I can just ascribe whatever I say to someone else. So sure, I'm not sure myself, <laughs> but somebody else would say, that's what I used to love to do. Uh, but, um, that's another thing. This may be all that most people learn from going to graduate school um, in history, especially is well, history is complicated. Um, and so I can say that for sure. The, um, another interesting thing uh, about Moody to go back and try to answer this question um, through a historical analysis of him is, uh, again, like I said, he recognized a lot of the problems of industrial capitalism. Um, this is the era, again, the 1870s, 80s, 90s of massification. We think of mass culture and mass production as a post-World War II thing, but that's really a, a new brand of it. It's um, Historians talk about pace, intensity, and scale. That's, that's a, you know, it's the same thing happening on a new scale in the 1950s and beyond, but the, the actual phenomenon is uh, part of the, the post-Civil uh, War era, and uh, along with um, mass production and along with mass culture and mass media comes um, a lot of corruption, a lot of uh, corrupt I- exchange between um, big money and politics. So it's a big, big business and politics. And uh, people recognize those problems. Uh, they were just, um, in many ways, the common ordinary people are not powerful enough to um, do much about that. And uh, again, what, what we may say about the social gospel uh, movement is they were at least uh despite their uh, very bad theological errors in a lot of ways, we're recognizing that here are some genuine problems that um, people ought to present moral solutions to. Um, And again, Moody was somebody who wanted to reach those masses who were, say, uh, waves of immigrants coming into big cities and um, working class people moving from the farms, from the the rural places of the country to the city, just looking for a job and living in tenements um, or in shacks or in back alleys or something like that. He he was wanting to reach those people and help them um, toward a better life spiritually, help them toward uh, Christ ultimately, but also um, lead them to a way of life that would lift them up in in a material sense as well. Um, Again, back to history is complicated. At the same time, um, Moody, uh, I would argue, a lot of his efforts were hindered um, whether consciously or unconsciously, by relationships he had with some of those big businessmen. Um, John Wanamaker, the um, merchant the, um, from Philadelphia, the founder, one of the, the two founders of what we know today as department stores, um, was a big supporter, a funder, and a personal friend of Moody. 
and then um, John Farwell uh, uh, was another one, again, one of the two big founders of department stores, which we would link to branding and marketing um, right. in the commercial sense today. Um, they were pioneers of marketing in the first era of mass production. Um, these are people who uh, I couldn't I couldn't say whether, you know, I, I wouldn't say rather that this is behind the scenes. They were controlling what Moody said or did, um, but he was uh, certainly he was influenced by um, relationships with them and uh, his own methods and what he was willing to say to to the masses and what issues he was really willing to take a stance on um, explicitly was definitely influenced by his middle class upbringing and uh, his uh, relationships with um, the people who were communicating with mass media to advertise his revivals from one city to the next and then the ones who were giving him and his network and his supporters money to uh build those tabernacles from in one city to the next and um, to advertise for them and to uh, set up and take down and travel and move on to the next place to try to get that big audience. Um, so again, I don't know if that really answers the question of how people ought to um, face this, this difficult problem, but um, that's a example of how prominent evangelicals in the past have um, you can right. probably guess guess uh, how um, how I would feel about that that um, measure. It, but but it, my 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 main point is just at the very least, it's difficult for for us and and probably most of the people listening to this podcast. If you have the leisure to listen to a podcast, you're probably not starving. And you are not in the middle of, you know, significant questions about, you know, how am I going to, to make it? How am I going to make sure that, that my kids are, are okay and such? And when you, like, let's, let's take unions for, for an example. Many people in factories saw unions as their friends because they could, in banding together, because unions were, I mean, that they were totally independent. They did not, that they were not government supported. They're just workers banding together to, you know, to, to press for rights here or there and for higher wages and such. But the story of many significant religious figures in the 20th century is standing against labor unions. Why is that? And I think you you may end up repeating yourself here, but I mean, because... I, I have a feeling we both have a good idea of why that is, but 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 why why would they why would religion why would Christian uh, pastors and evangelists stand against unions? It's something that I, I've noticed. I, I, I'm probably not the first person to notice or, or um, point this out, but um, Christians in all eras, uh, ours included, I think. Um, for good or ill in certain situations will um, 
distance themselves from an idea or from a group of people because it's associated with another idea or group of people. Um, you hear a buzzword that somebody says or, or a phrase and automatically you don't try to understand that phrase on its own merit um, or try to understand that proposal or idea on its own merit. You just think, well, that's associated with this other group, which I know is bad. So in, right. in the instance of uh, early 1900s, the, the struggle um, between capitalists and, and labor unions, um, you may have known a socialist politician or um, somebody who uh, came from um, a, another country, say a, a labor union leader uh, is a German immigrant and you know that he has ties to the socialist party and you think, well, therefore that's associated with something bad. Um, therefore this thing that he's proposing must be bad. And that that's again, not a particular fault in every scenario. It is a, a, a sometimes a safe bet, but um, it's not the um, only way to go about evaluating ideas or people or groups or, or proposals or intellectual uh, streams, uh, you know, again, that's a short answer, but uh, that's uh, how, again, I think that applies in that era and the New Deal era, and then, you know, the high points of the, the Cold War in the 50s and 60s and beyond as well. One of the, um, one author that, that I, I've read in the past who does a good job in kind of uh, messing with our, our normal left-right division that, you know, the, the one that I came of age with. My, my first election to vote in was 2000, uh, the, the, the infamous Bush versus Gore election which Alabama was not in question, but just to the south of us was. And of course, you know, that, that liberal, liberal conservative distinction was clear. But uh, a guy named Bill Kaufman, uh, a writer from New York, wrote a book several years ago that, that it was one of the first books to kind of take my, my, my neat distinctions and turn them upside down. Uh, and that book is called Look Homeward, America, In Search of Reactionary Radicals and Front Porch Anarchists. And it was published by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which was, you know, top of the line, name brand conservative outfit back in the 80s and 90s. And it's still around today. But Kaufman talks about different characters, uh, Dorothy Day, for example, the, 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 the Roman Catholic uh, labor or the, the Catholic worker movement, you know, that, that she started. He talks about uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the senator from New York, and multiple others. Again, it's been a while since I read that book, but I remember by the time I was finished with the book, I thought, I don't know up from down right now because it, it just, it, it turned me over. And something that, again, in, in one of the books, I think it was Kevin Cruz's uh, One Nation Under God, that you 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 mentioned that to me and, and it posits that, that there was a purposeful movement and, and, and merger between business 
and the American conservative movement to go in a sharply libertarian direction that was precipitated by the New Deal because the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt put a lot of restrictions on business. And so those businesses wanted to get the wanted to get rid of those restrictions. But just saying we want to get rid of the restrictions was not enough. You know, it's like me saying, I really wish that these guys would lower the speed limit, would raise the speed limit because I hate being limited to 70 miles an hour. But if I say that, if I can convince my pastor that 70 miles an hour is an ungodly speed limit because it's so low, well, that's a whole other matter. Because then he'll, he'll, he'll occasionally preach about it or, or something like that. And, and that, on a huge scale, was what was going on, at least, you know, for Cruz. And, and I, where, where he's at his best is when he's just showing historical data and, and, and presenting what was going on. So talk about this merging uh, group with, you know, b- between the, the, the religious conservatives well, and actually, I got to be careful because not all of them were actually religious conservatives. Some of them were moderates to liberals. But, but tying religion, tying Christianity with libertarian political philosophy and economics. Yeah, one of the, the things that historians like to do is encapsulate their argument for a certain book in that book's title or subtitle. And they always overstate the case. Because they have to, they want you to pick it up and read it. Uh, right. So Cruz's book is, you know, One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. Um, a lot of us are going to revolt at that title and say, well, that's right. just not true. You know, America was a Christian nation uh, from the, before it was America, right? Uh, when it was um, New England, when it was uh, a Puritan colony or when it was a, you know, the Jamestown or something like that, you know, you, you may have your, your qualms with that. And I definitely do, um, with that phraseology in, in the subtitle there. Um, but the, the, um, phenomenon that you're pointing out of, uh, a link, which, you know, these things happen behind the scenes, uh, to most people's eyes because it's, it's big elite actors who, who are doing things, um, that, uh, we aren't privy to for the most part until, something comes out historically much later or until you see something on the news or you read an article uh, in, in the newspaper. But um, I don't think there was necessarily uh, something uh, sinister or nefarious about it. Um, uh, but what, what Cruz points to is uh, prominent ev- evangelicals like um, Jerry Falwell Jr. or, or sorry, Jerry Falwell, um, Billy Graham, uh, others having uh, influence within presidential administrations like um, Johnson or, or, or Nixon, um, uh, then uh, relationships with uh, big business, whether it's uh, oil or food or publishing um, and using those relationships to uh, advance their um, religious goals of, say, social conservatism, as we would call it today, um, the laws or um, orders being passed in that realm and telling, uh, say, uh, the, the businessmen behind the scenes, if you'll support this social conservative, um, say, pro-family effort, then we will talk to our friends in the Senate, in Congress, and, uh, you know, advisors in the White House, and uh, try to convince them that this 
pro free market or pro big business policy or, or law ought to go in effect as well. Um, and then that kind of practice behind the scenes mixed with the, the existential threat that most people uh, understood at the time, in the 60s, 70s and 80s of um, godless Soviet communism being um, that ever present threat. And again, if it's a threat to Christianity, uh, then it's a threat to America and vice versa. And um, so why wouldn't you? How couldn't you engage in those relationships between um, big name, influential Christians and um, the, the, the businessmen who they could mutually benefit from a partnership like this? And, and that's, again, what Cruz points out, like you say, uh, when he's describing those stories and, and that historical data and information, um, I, 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 I'm right there with him. And, and then Often I read works of history and people get into analysis and interpretation, which is often the most interesting part um, of any historical work. I end up disagreeing. Uh, right. There's kind of a, a defense that I come back with, uh, again, not my own, but it's a, so what, <laughs> you know, or not that there's, is that, is that bad? Is there anything wrong with that? Um, uh, that's often uh, reading uh, that I think will good. I, I'm glad there were Christians who, who were trying to uh, get their hands on the levers of, political power. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a, a bad thing to do. Often um, what has happened historically, again, this would go back to, to my research as well, and through down through the 19th century and into the present day, often um, the problem comes when uh, American Christians have tried to get their hands on the levers of political or cultural power with no guiding principle that comes from the word of God. It, you know, it comes from uh, the Austrian school of economics, or it, it comes from, uh, you know, Reaganism, or, or maybe it comes from Roosevelt New Deal uh, policies, right. and, and you think, well, right. this is what Christians ought to be doing without ever checking your work, um, checking your uh, intellectual influences, your political or philosoph philosophical influences, and say your, your political math without checking that against uh, what the Bible says and what historic Christianity has said um, in its different times and places. Uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be influential. You know, to put it in a nutshell, sure. there's nothing wrong with Christians wanting to be influential, but what has happened, um, like we're describing the, the late 19th century, or sorry, late 1900s, and then back into uh, Moody's own era, was there's no uh, explicit conscious link that they are, are making between their political programs or social or economic programs and um, the what the Word of God says about it. That's where I think we really run into problems and have historically. Another author who, well, okay, so for, so for anyone who's interested, you know, again, the book we've mentioned several times is by Kevin Cruz, One Nation Under God. And an, a good alternative to that from a much more, I mean, because Cruz is liberal in, in his perspective, uh, is, another alternative is called God's Own Party by Daniel Williams. And it's called The Making of the Christian Right. And, and it, it talks about some of the same events, like uh, talk goes back to the Eisenhower administration and talks about Eisenhower uh, being the first president baptized while in office. I know Cruz mentions that. And he has, Cruz has a much more cynical view, whereas Williams looks at it in a much more positive way. But either way, you can't... What we can't deny is that God, our, our Father, has always used money to finance 
his kingdom. You go back to when Israel left Egypt. What did they do before they left Egypt? They received the gifts. (laughs) Essentially, the wages for generations of slavery from the Egyptians. So they they went in, and and we see, and I think it's it's a wonderful picture, two things that happened with the wages that they received. One, they made a golden calf. That was the wrong thing to do. Well, then they also used it for, uh, used the gold to in the construction of the elements in the tabernacle and later the temple. Well, that's a good thing. So it's not that, that, that money, wealth should not be a part. It always has been. So we can't pretend like, well, once money got involved in the church, then everything went downhill. Well, actually, no, uh, it, it didn't. But when you ask something like, where did Paul get the money to go on a, a missionary excursions with, an, with a group, with a band of disciples? Well, one of the guys that went with him early in his ministry was a real estate investor named Barnabas who sold land and and was able to go with Paul. So, I mean, so, so this is, my point is, this has been a part of the church for a long time. And so maybe, you know, just in, in closing a couple of books, one that you that they, you'd mentioned, uh, it was from Bible Belt to Sun Belt. By and, and both these books, I'm so there's that, and there's also Anointed with Oil, both by Darren Dochuk uh, or, or, or Duchuk. I don't know how D O C H U K. But he discusses the rise also of the the religious right and its connection with oil and as well in, in anointing with oil, but also the rise there with, um, in California of all places, what we don't normally think of California as being a haven for religious and, and, and conservative politics. But if you look, there's a lot of what we know today as a conservative movement that came to us from California. So how did California become such a, 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 such a place to send out the, the gospel of the free market the way that it did? That's an interesting, uh, long twisted tale too. Uh, that's <laughs> the, the funny thing is, uh, Billy Graham born, uh, in North Carolina, I, I believe, and associated with that, um, but got his start. Um, one of the first places that he ever filled up was the LA Coliseum. Um, and politically speaking, we have uh, Nixon and Reagan as well from uh, California. And then in our own day, you may think, uh, well, what what uh, reformed or, or you know Calvinistic Christian could be in, in California these days? Well, John MacArthur's there with a, a rather large church and following. Um, so a, a lot of uh, during the 1920s and 30s, uh, there were um, 
south and uh, southern and southwestern um, rural places were uh, struggling economically and people went wherever there were jobs. So you had a, a lot of people from Baptistic, Methodist, uh, Pentecostal backgrounds um, leaving their home states of Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, um, Louisiana, Texas, and um, Oklahoma, and heading west to where there was uh, economic opportunity. That happened to be uh, California at, at the time. And they didn't just bring um, their families and their stuff with them. They, they brought their, their beliefs, and, and that included... Um, political and uh, religious beliefs. And, and they were, say, transplants there, but you, you um, are there for a generation or two and it becomes um, your place, your home state there. And um, Dochuk's argument, of course, in, uh, from Bible Belt to Sun Belt is the, the old place that we knew of as the, the buckle of the Bible Belt, the South and the, you know, the Southwest. Um, they, that, that, that place eventually transformed into that uh, burgeoning economic zone of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, California, um, where where the jobs were, people went and they uh, eventually founded and built institutions. They had uh, revivalistic radio programs that they uh, sent mm -hmm. out from California all across the nation. They, they had their um, seminaries, small seminaries, small Christian colleges, Christian right. elementary schools. You know, they, they were building these institutions because they uh, had made a home there. And, and um, it's not a place... It's, it's a place that's changed so much demographically and culturally and politically since then that we don't associate with uh, associate it with um, free market economics and uh, evangelical Christianity. But uh, for a nice solid period of 40 to 50 years, uh, that was mostly what was going on there. Um, or right. maybe not mostly, but it was a, a heavy influence on, on the state and on the region. Right. When... That period, really, from the 1950s, Cruz talks about this. Uh, Dochuk talks about it as well. It was thriving, and it was it was a, just a hotbed of of all kinds of things going on uh, in, in in the, the political in the political right. Uh, one name many of our folks will recognize: R.J. Rushduni received money from you know, indirectly from J. Howard Pugh. Uh, and, you know, he got his start working for the Volcker, uh, Paul Volcker, the, the libertarian uh, thinker. And so all of this together, uh, it's going to combine to produce something powerful. And, and then in, in Anointed with Oil, he talks about the the two different oil groups that that clash. You got the Standard Oil, John D. Rockefeller, and 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 kind of they're more northern because they're in Pennsylvania. They're they're <clears throat> excuse me, northern religious sensibilities, much more social social moderate. And then you have what he calls the the wildcat Christianity of J. Howard Pugh with Sun Oil and then the guy who started Gulf, Gulf Oil as well as um, his main character, who I can't even think of right now, who founded uh, an oil company in Beaumont, Texas. So Texas especially, he pits the perspective of Texas and then of the Rockefeller North 
against one another and even in their how they relate their foreign relations in because you know the rockefellers they got some of their that they supported missionaries in arabic countries and their missions base also helped them to get a leg up on some of this black gold that's in these arab countries as well now we could we could take a while on that which we won't but it is it's something that we can't merely claim God's going to take care of, of all the good people and he's going to bring down the bad. He does He does so often through uh, the means of using wealth to do this. And sometimes the story is not quite as, as lily white clean as we would like for it to be. But... Most of the characters in Scripture are not lily white clean either. So, yeah. anyway, go ahead. Well, that that just reminds me of uh, something we've talked about before: the um, unintended consequences of um, actions that people take downstream, many years or generations later, historically, things that uh, people didn't intend to, um, ha- you know come along as a, a consequence um, sometimes do, and, and they would be shocked and probably would, you know, possibly regret or change what they had done. Um, and are the, the use of one of the uses of history as a, a Christian ought to be um, to try to read those into your own analysis and interpretation of history. Try to use um, the historic um, data and um, wisdom to try to, foresee what could be some of the unintended consequences of what we, we might be doing um, as a church or as an individual or as a family today. And um, the <clears throat> use that to guide your actions today, uh, say whether you're a leader of a church, a leader of a family or a business. Um, I, I would never want to uh, impugn everybody we've talked about uh, uh, today, certainly not the subject of um, a lot of my own research. Um, I, I don't believe Moody was a nefarious actor uh, by any means or a careless person necessarily, um, but we often you, you uh, undertake projects, you build institutions, you um, try to um, take action, and you are not uh, careful about your relationships, careful about your methods, or careful about hewing as close as you possibly can to um, the, the Word of God and historic Christianity, um, then maybe a hundred years uh, after you're gone, then some things that you uh, wish wouldn't happen have uh, unfortunately happened. And right. that can be humbling to us. It can be a, a guiding principle. It can be something that we think about as we read history and as we um, live our own lives in the present. Right. Well, Jake, I appreciate this. I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. I know we've, we've, we've covered a lot of material, but I'll, I'll put links to the different books that we cover at the end. And, and again, so, so anyone who is, is interested, certainly, you know, at our church, they can, I, I know, talk to you about these things, but uh, it, it's been good. I appreciate you taking time to talk today. Yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you for having me. 
The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy Got a Minute, theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people, featuring Rich Lusk and Larson Hicks.